It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. New Zealand is mourning after dozens of people were killed in a terrorist attack at two mosques in Christchurch this month. The man charged with the shooting appears to be a white nationalist extremist. Christian Picciolini knows the philosophy. He's a former white supremacist skinhead who says the movement's leaders use fear to recruit. What's happening in America right now when some white people are saying, you know, we're losing and and we're going to be overrun and all these people are coming in and we're going to lose this sense of white identity, what they don't understand is that they've always enjoyed the power, the control, historically, around the world. Picciolini left the movement and now helps others disengage from hate. He's our featured speaker. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. Christian Picciolini went to his first skinhead meeting at age 14. He was bullied as a kid, friendless, and introverted. He felt abandoned by his parents who spent all their time running a business. He was perfect recruiting material, he says. The white supremacists who took him in felt like family at first, but as time went on, Picciolini questioned their beliefs and his own. He sits down with Matt Thompson to talk about his memoir, White American Youth, My Descent into America's Most Violent Hate Movement, and How I Got Out. Thompson is executive editor of The Atlantic. Here's Thompson. So I've read uh, your memoir, listened to your memoir, White American Youth. Um, Thank you. You've got a really interesting, fascinating story. Can you please tell it to me in five minutes or less? (laughs) Uh, um. So my journey away from violent extremism began 23 years ago uh, when I was 22 years old. But before that, I was this guy, this eighth grader who was about to turn 14, who uh, for 14 years had been bullied, who felt abandoned by my parents. who didn't have any friends uh, and was frankly very lonely and introverted. Um, And I had a hard time. Uh, My parents uh, are Italian immigrants. They moved uh, from Italy in the mid-60s and and they were often the victims of prejudice when they arrived. Um, But because they were immigrants, they had to work very, very hard. So they managed to open a small business uh, and they were gone seven days a week, 14 hours a day, really trying to do the right thing. I mean, now I don't blame them, but growing up, I kind of wondered what did I do to push them away? Uh, and I certainly wasn't mature or brave enough to, to kind of approach it. Um, so I just got angry and I got very resentful and I started to act out uh, pretty badly. And one day when I was 14, this age here, I was standing in an alley and I was smoking a joint and uh, a man pulled up in a car and he came out and he had a shaved head and he was wearing boots. And the year was 1987. I didn't know what a skinhead was. Nobody really in America knew what a skinhead was at that time. Uh, and he walked up to me, pulled the joint out of my mouth, looked me in the eyes, and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. I was 14. I didn't know what a communist was. You know, the guy in the, in the Rocky movie, Drago, was really the only Russian that I knew. <laughs> My favorite movie, uh, and uh, this is yeah. a deep cut for the post millennials. Totally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, you know, I didn't know what a Jewish person was. I went to a Catholic school. I wouldn't have known if I'd come across anybody, uh, and I didn't even know what the word docile meant. I was literally two weeks before that sitting in my grandparents' closet, you know, drawing pictures and 
playing with baseball cards. I had no concept of what racism or politics was. Um, but that moment, you know, although it started off as aggressive and kind of scolding me, turned very quickly into him putting his hand on my shoulder and, say, and asking me my name. And I told him, and he recognized it was Italian, and he said, you know, your ancestors are great warriors and thinkers and, and artists, and you should be very proud of that. And I was. I grew up in an Italian family in an Italian neighborhood with other people from the same villages. It was pretty much all I knew. In fact, at that point, I thought if you weren't Italian, you weren't good enough. Like, I thought only Italians were, you know, cool, yeah. uh, because I didn't know anybody else. Um, so he really appealed to the sense of, you know, this making me a hero or promising me paradise. And, uh, but then it would kind of turn into, and there are people that want to take that away from you, and it's, you know, the Jews and the communists and uh, the Latinos and the immigrants and everybody else. So it very quickly ramped up, and, and of course I didn't want to seem stupid, and I wanted to belong. It was the first time I'd ever had any acceptance uh, and it did provide a family for me. It provided me with an identity, a community, and a purpose, something that I think is a pretty foundational um, search for all of us at some point in our lives. And, and they did provide that to me before you know, it became very self-destructive. Yeah. So you went from innocent kid, you're, you know, with the... Uh, I went from Chachi? Yep. <laughs> to the next picture, to Nazi almost overnight. I mean, this is maybe 15 and a half, 16 years old. I had sprouted a little bit. I wasn't just a short kid anymore. But um, what this did almost overnight was adopting this look and this rhetoric. Now all the people that had tormented me would avoid me. And suddenly I felt powerful. Of course, it was perceived power. It wasn't real. It, was, it wasn't respect. It was fear. Um, but for a kid who felt powerless his whole life to suddenly experience this power and control, um, I was pretty intoxicated by it. I want to dwell on that for a moment. So listening to you describe this story, um, uh, you, there all the, I mean, you were a bruiser, right? I mean, you had, got into a lot of fights. Um, and there are a number of passages in, um, in your book um, about fights that you got into. And, and particularly, there are a few times when you tell a story of, of coming up against like bad odds um, in, a, in a fight and overcoming. And, and listening to you tell that story, um, I'm, it was hard not to, I, to wonder, was any piece of you today telling that story proud of this, this kid that could get with his best friend and, like, and clear out a, a, a yeah. room full of football players? Uh, no. The, answer, the very quick answer is no. I was very ashamed writing my book uh, because it, it ha I had to go through those experiences again. But I was also very conscious about writing the book in the voice of who I was at that time. And, and, and you can see it progress throughout the book. Um, you know, I didn't want to seem like an intellectual when I was 15 years old, because I wasn't. Uh, you know, I was very crass, and I would say words to, you know, to provoke people. Um, and, you know, I think I really wanted to be as genuine and as sincere as possible. Uh, my goal is not to glamorize it in any way. It certainly was, you know, the opposite of that. Uh, but I also wanted it to seem so real that people could be there. And I think, I hope I did a, a good job of that, yeah. uh, to pull people in and really experience kind of viscerally uh, what it is that I went through and what it is that I put people through, because that was really 
the hardest thing for me to kind of verbalize, um, you know, and, and re-empathize kind of these really awful situations for the victim. Within that context, so um, you are hanging out with some of the earliest skinheads, Nazi, you know, Nazi, Nazi skinheads in America at mm-hmm. the time, and um, how was, I'm curious, how, how was your masculinity policed? What could you and couldn't you do? What kind of... Uh, well, I, you know, my parents are still married, but my dad was really never around. Uh, he was, you know, always running a business, and, and I didn't really have a father figure growing up. Uh, and even so, I think my dad was a pretty timid guy, um, and not somebody I looked up to growing up. I resented him a lot, actually, for not being there. So I didn't really have kind of that, you know, that fundamental how to be a man type thing and how to be a good man, especially. Uh, so I was raised once I got into this movement around a lot of very toxic masculinity, a lot of misogyny. On the outside, uh, you know, the tactic, the marketing tactic was to praise white women uh, because they were the saviors of the white race. They were gonna birth the next generation of warriors. This is a lot like ISIS, if you haven't picked that up already. Um, And, you know, outwardly, they would put them on a pedestal. However, in reality, once they had them, uh, they were treated, uh, you know, frankly, worse than our enemies were. Uh, they were made to, you know, make babies. They were treated horribly. They were abused, um, and uh, yeah, it was not. It was not a safe place. Women were drawn to it. Women who were broken, I think, were drawn to it because they thought it was going to provide this very traditional sense of structure because they believe in, you know, quote unquote, traditional values. Uh, but it was completely the opposite of that. It was, it was a male-dominated, very misogynistic environment where actually a lot of women were physically and sexually abused uh, by people in the movement. Mm. Um, so you are in the, you're a teenager, and you got this, um, this group, you got a crew. Yeah, so by now I was you know, sev- six, 17, I think, and this was uh, in Germany in, in, uh, where I had taken a band. I'd started one of America's first bands, and we were the first band to leave the U.S. to play. One of America, not one of America's no, first no, no, bands. No, sorry, in this genre, in this hate music genre, and we were the first band to travel outside Germany. And, and by this point, I had started to really kind of amass a leadership. Uh, the guy who recruited me in that alley, uh, Clark Martell, was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead leader. He had brought it over from, in, from England, uh, and he had gone to prison uh, for a series of, of very violent crimes uh, by the time I was 16. Your relationship with Clark Martell yeah. is another one of those things that comes out in the book. I, th- I found myself thinking about um, uh, uh, Susan Faludi's book about the Citadel. Um, when the Citadel was being integrated, when Shannon Faulkner was integrate, integrating the then all-male Citadel, um, um, it was hugely controversial. The cadets, the alumni, they wanted to know, they were got, got kicked up a big fuss, and Susan Faludi wanted to ask the question, why was this so, uh, why, did it, why was it so threatening mm-hmm. to have a woman here? Um, and part of what, at least my interpretation of what she found was that she, um, she found a context where um, the, femininity, what had been coded as feminine, had been narrowed to such a stretch that they had had etiquette lessons for men where if you saw a hint of, of precipitation, um, you should take your coat off and put it on the ground. Chivalry, so, right? <laughs> and, and, um, and so having narrowed the definition of what it meant to, um, to be feminine that thin, 
um, the bounds of what it meant to be masculine expanded. And so you had these men, these brothers who were also sisters to each other and also mothers and fathers to each other. And I'm curious, what was that dynamic like within your crew and with Clark Martell? To, you know, it, w- it was like that to some degree. There was this illusion of this family, but it was a dysfunctional family. I mean, there was nothing positive about it other than you had other people that were as broken as you to share their company with. Uh, you know, misery loves company, so it was, it was not about bringing people that were better than us. It was about bringing people that we thought we could control, otherwise we wouldn't be able to feel good about ourselves. Um, you know, because so much of this is driven by self-hatred, and you know, we hated ourselves for our brokenness, that we would project that pain that we were feeling onto other people so that we didn't have to feel it. And if we made other people feel worse than we did, Sometimes, for some people, that was the only way they could feel good about themselves. And, uh, you know, my relationship with Clark was of, you know, a father to son. I didn't have a great relationship with my dad. Uh, But Clark was also very mentally ill. Um, And, uh, you know, it started to become very apparent to me that he was kind of going off the rails. When he went to prison, he would send me, you know, photographs that he would draw that draw that were very pornographic and write these kind of sexual stories. And then at one point, he had tried to castrate himself in prison and smeared himself with feces, and you know, was saluting around the until they put him in, in the psych ward. Uh, but he was absolutely mentally ill, and um, you know, the, actually, mental illness is pretty rampant in the movement. So, do you think, in that basis, what was it? Uh, is there a certain profile of a person who's susceptible? Who, what was it? I think every, every young person who is searching for identity, community, and purpose, if on their life's journey they hit what I call potholes, you know, the traumas, the abuse, the, you know, uh, growing up with, uh, you know, in a socioeconomic depressed environment, uh, you know, seeing your father die, you know, or commit suicide at four, or being raped when you were three, all these things, these potholes, if we don't have the right resources uh, or, you know, can properly navigate around them, sometimes we get detoured down these dark alleys where there are people waiting for us because they know that we're easier to manipulate because some of, we've never experienced some of the joys in life, and they can promise those things. And like I said, to a degree, they do deliver. They, do, they did give me an identity. I went from a nobody to a somebody. Yeah. I went from no family to this very, you know, what I thought was a very loving and supporting family, and I certainly had a purpose. It was not a good one, yeah. uh, but it was the only one I'd ever known, and frankly, I thought I was a humanitarian during, you know, the early years. Let's dive into that for a moment. <laughs> Um, so take us in, I want to go into the ideology. Um, one aspect of it that you touched on, um, but I wanted to return to, is white. Um, your, um, your parents immigrated to the U.S. from Italy. Um, it was not always obvious, certainly for, for several of my Italian-American sure. friends, it was not always obvious that they got to fully claim right. that label for themselves. Yeah. Um, it is the first title, the first word in your memoir. How did, um, how did you come to underst- understand yourself fully as white and not a quote-unquote white ethnic? Well, you know, I can explain it from the perspective of the movement. Uh, they were interested in people of European heritage who were Gentiles, uh, who were not Jewish, meaning Greeks, Spaniards, Italians, um, 
you know, but for me, I always kind of had that question myself because I didn't understand. When I was a little kid, I was Italian and white people were white. Uh, as I grew up, then obviously, you know, incorporating into society, I started to feel myself being white and then I started to resent my parents for being immigrants because I was so angry at them that now I had to punish them for feeling abandoned. So what were you protecting? What was this, what was the ideology, what was the movement, what, why did you feel like a humanitarian hero? Uh, the, the number one um, fear rhetoric piece that, that they would promote is this idea of a white genocide that because of multiculturalism that the white race would eventually disappear. And that if we didn't stand up for it now and eliminate the enemies who wanted to promote this uh, you know, Jewish multicultural conspiracy uh, to destroy the white race, um, sounds ridiculous, because it is, um, that was, we were afraid. And we thought, wow, there are all these enemies. You know, everybody was painted as a criminal, as an animal, as a monster, as a parasite. These words really don't change over the last 30 years. Some of the same, you know, we're hearing some of the same rhetoric now. Yeah. It's always about painting the other as kind of this, you know, subhuman parasite. So this concept, this is one of the most confusing things to me about white supremacy. There, there, so there are a lot of different groups of populations around the world who have, in living memory, historical reasons to be concerned about the threat of genocide. And I'm not like oppression Olympicsing you or trying to oppression shame you or anything like that, but you know, white Americans, not in living memory, you know, they're not that many historical. This is one group that, you know, it's not like you're looking at the history books, like, you know, it could be that again. Yeah, they've got a long history of, of these genocides. And right, yeah. yes. There are a lot of groups who have the living memory of genocide. How did they, why is it such a palpable threat? Why, how did it become such a palpable threat? Because sometimes equality to the people who have control seems like oppression. What's happening in America right now when some white people are saying, you know, we're losing and, and we're going to be overrun and all these people are coming in and we're going to lose this sense of white identity, uh, which is a fear tactic that these recruiters use, what they don't understand is that they've always enjoyed the power, the control, historically, around the world. Uh, and now that things are finally equalizing, they're not losing anything, they're just, things are finally equalizing, or at least getting, you know, moving in that direction. I'm not suggesting things are equal right now. I think we have a lot of problems. Um, and for somebody who maybe, you know, is driven by some of this fear rhetoric, you know, it could be a scary thing. If that's your reality, you know, and I always say that if, my, if I went to school and I had a twin brother, and he, and he went to a different school from the day we were born, and they taught me that two plus two is four, for my whole academic career. But at his school, they taught him that two plus two was five for his whole academic career. When we would come together, we would argue to the death because that's his reality and I had mine. And unfortunately, we're living kind of in an America where there are two different realities, two sets of facts, alternate facts, real facts, whatever we're calling them these days. And the truth is, is there, you know, no, no truth is that cut and dry. There's always a nuance to it. Uh, but they're very good at making it very unidimensional, black and white, and it's easier to, to blame that way. So it, one of the, I mean, one of the dimensions of the book that's, that's quite interesting is that you do 
kind of dive in detail into the, the story, the full narrative. And it's almost like, I mean, if you are familiar with like millennial theology, it is almost like a raptured narrative. It's like revelations. It's uh, um, this, this vision of the future that you were, you were painted. It's, it, I mean, it's, it feels like a piece of speculative fiction in some ways. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was about painting the apocalypse. I mean, we thought the race war was inevitable. We thought that... You know, a, a second American uh, Civil War was, was just around the corner. Were there prophets like there are in end times theology now? I mean, was there like a date where people saying like on August 23rd, 1987? There, there were some. I mean, there were some who were so deep in the conspiracy theory mindset that, you know, there were, you know, these kind of people who they would listen to. But, you know, I don't think so. You know, there, I don't recall anybody. But we would always be prepared because it could be tomorrow. You know, anytime a new law passed um, you know and we're talking about all these laws that are being passed now you know uh, Supreme Court justices and immigration and, and separation of families in those days uh, it was kind of the opposite anytime we would see a, a positive policy for society we saw that as a threat to us and every time we saw that threat, it would push us closer to that, you know, that perceived race war that was just around the corner. Uh, so we stockpiled weapons. We were we trained. Um, you know, we were we were ready, uh, but we were living in this paranoid fantasy world uh, that, you know, we were marginalized, and that's why we went into these groups. But what we didn't recognize is that we became uber uh, marginalized by going into these groups, you know, kind of going further away from society and, and it detached us from reality even more. It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Today's featured speaker, Christian Picciolini, co-founded the organization Life After Hate and leads the Free Radicals Project. The project is made up of former extremists who help people around the world disengage from hate. Picciolini told the Christian Science Monitor he's helped more than 200 people exit a life of hate. Picciolini was host and narrator of the documentary Breaking Hate that aired last year on MSNBC. He's speaking with journalist Matt Thompson. Here's Thompson. So let's keep going with your story then. Um, you, um, what was, I mean, t- take us to doubt. Um, when did you start to wonder about the world beyond this crazy end time story you had found yourself in? About a week after I was recruited in that alley. I mean, I always had doubts. I wasn't raised that way, so everything was very foreign to me. But at, at first I didn't want to, asked questions, I just nodded my head, pretended I understood everything because I didn't want to seem stupid. Uh, you know, I already felt from the day I was you know, a little kid that I was stupid. Um, and I certainly wasn't gonna show that kind of vulnerability to, to any of my peers at that point. Um, so I had questions every day of those eight years that I was involved. Um, but I always pushed them down because you know, that, that power that I felt from that identity, community, and purpose that I was enjoying was much, much stronger uh, than kind of my reason to do right. Even though I had that voice in the back of my head, I pushed it away, you know, because I was addicted. It was like being on drugs. Uh, And to go away from that was to go away from comfort and to have to start over, but not only to have to start over, but to have to start over with my 
former friends hating me and the rest of the world still thinking I was a racist. So for many people, it's very easy to stay, go along with the program, be more violent, and enjoy this, you know, whatever you know, perks they have of being part of this. So the, in the book, you describe in some ways a series of catalysts that each kind of build on one another to reinforce. Um, so there's your um, meeting um, your first wife, your girlfriend, first wife, yeah. Lisa. Yeah, coming back from the, the, yeah. that Germany trip, uh, I met a girl, fell in love, was 19 years old, and we got married, and we had our first son at 19 and our second son at 21, and that was really the first time that, I was, that my sense of identity, community, and purpose was challenged. You know, was I a hate monger, or was I a father and a husband? Uh, was the community the one that I had surrounded myself with to boost my own ego, or was it you know, the one that I had given life to. And, you know, did I want to continue to scorch the earth as my purpose or, or was it to actually, you know, provide for my family in a safe environment and, you know, watch them be healthy and educated? And I really struggled with that. I was not brave enough, unfortunately, to make the right decision, though. Um, I didn't leave fast enough and, and my wife and children left me. Yeah. You, um, you started the music store. Yeah. This generated an income for you. Um, but um, there was this moment, there's this crossroads that happens in the book that I wanted to ask you about, which is um, you were offered a chance to become the leader of the Northern Hammerskins. Um, uh, so the, the, the bureaucracy, the, the hierarchy that you describe in the book, you kind of sketch out pieces of it, but I don't quite understand the org chart of the org. So... At 14 years old, uh, I went to my first meeting, which was uh, our group in Chicago meeting with some other new skinheads from Detroit and, and Milwaukee and Dallas. And the Dallas skinheads had this, uh, this idea, they had named their group the Hammerskins. And they wanted to, now that groups were popping up all over the country, they wanted to kind of bring everybody into this umbrella and call it the Hammerskin Nation. Um, and the northern Hammerskins was the northern states, and then at that time, Canada as well. And, then, and I became the leader of that and was in charge of several hundred people. Uh, and today, the Hammerskins are, are known as uh, the deadliest and most violent um, American hate group. So this moment, I mean, you, they were offering you, how old were you when you were offered? I think I was 16 or 17. Yeah, 17, I think. What would that have meant in terms of practical support um, financial resources. How did you meet? How did, I mean, how did you organize? Right. Were there PowerPoint presentations? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there were any PowerPoints, but uh, um, you know, it was meetings. Uh, we couldn't gather in VFW halls or anything like that, so it would be, you know, in somebody's basement or apartment or um, you know, some warehouse or something like that, and people would typically come in from all over the country. And what, what, there was no internet back then. So. What would it have meant for you to, if you had taken, I'm going to spoiler alert, you didn't become the leader of the Northern Hammerskins, no, but what would it have meant for you if you had? What set of responsibilities would have accrued to you? Did, yeah. I would have essentially been the CEO of uh, probably 12 states and, and all this, the Hammerskin groups within those states. Um, you know, Hammerskins at that time considered themselves the elite of the white supremacists. There were rules about not doing drugs and, and uh, you know, treating your comrades with respect and all these things. So, I, you know, I handled the marketing. I handled uh, 
there were no finances. Marketing? Yes, propaganda, I should say. We call it marketing today. Did you? Well, I, was, I started a band, uh, and that was the way that, w that was my propaganda. So in the lyrics was education, it was incitement to violence, it was conspiracy theory. And in concerts, when people would come from all over the country and you'd get a couple hundred people or a couple thousand people, uh, it was like a pep rally. It was a way to kind of re-energize people, refocus them, make them angrier, you know, remind them who the enemy was, and frankly get them you know, fueled up with a bunch of liquor uh, and let them loose. Um, and it was at that concert in Germany, though, actually, where I, I recognized for the first time the impact and the consequences of my words, uh, because it, before that it had been on a small scale with just some friends, but these 4,000 skinheads that came from all over Europe uh, went out into the town after I sang my lyrics and they essentially destroyed it. Uh, and not only did they destroy you know, property, but they beat up townspeople who were white and German and suddenly I was like, okay, this is, a, this is not a movement with a purpose or an ideology, this is just a, a movement to destroy. And uh, you know, it was like an epiphany for me uh, in some ways that this is not who I wanted to be associated with. Yeah. Another aspect, I mean, among these different catalysts that kind of pulled you out progressively, um, uh, you're having um, children, um, this moment in Germany. Um, another was this moment in the store. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so you had this music store and you found yourself, you described yourself for the first time being a small business owner dependent on a community, customers. Right. And one of those customers was a guy named Black Sammy. Yeah. Who black. was actually black. Black Sammy who was actually black. And he walks into your store. And he walks into my store, and Black Sammy was uh, an anti-racist skinhead. So for folks that might not know this, there are different types of skinheads. Normally when we hear about skinheads or think about them, we think of you know, mild kind of Nazis or white supremacists. But in fact, there are groups of skinheads that are not that are very against racism. That some that are uh, you know there are gay skinheads. There are all different kind of subcultures within this skinhead and movement. And there were at the time too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They started in, in kind of opposition to us. How similar or different was that from today's dynamic um, between would would would, uh, would Black Sammy today have been maybe like Antifa? Yes, that 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 is the progression of what we used to call sharps, skinheads against, or they call themselves sharps, skinheads against racial prejudice. So if you're not familiar with this term today, they use the term Antifa, anti-fascist, um, yeah. which is controversial. Yeah, they're protesters that essentially we hear about when the Nazis march, they're the ones out there. Uh, you know, we hear narratives of them being violent, uh, and I've known many of them, and, and they're not all violent. There are some, uh, which I don't agree with. Um, but yeah, that would be the progression. So there were these anti-fascist groups that opposed us, and uh, Black Sammy was one of them. But however, he was a black skinhead with a swastika tattooed on his forehead. Um, also mentally ill. Um, his friends didn't understand him, I didn't quite understand him, but in this moment he came into my store and I, I reached for a pistol because I knew that this was gonna be a showdown. Um, and it wasn't. Instead he came in to buy music, and we talked and I recognized that this was just a, a, a normal guy that I actually had a lot in common with. But was really into white power music. Yeah, he was just kind of a strange guy. Uh, he, was in, <laughs> yeah, he was into white power music. 
but he was also you know, very anti-racist as well. So I want to talk for a moment. We'll probably take a midway break. Midway, midway through our conversation, I'll probably break for one or two questions. So be thinking of the things that you want to ask. But I want to talk, focus in on the movement itself, and sure. particularly contrasts and comparisons with today, mm. um, and Good what question. we see in today's politics. One one question I'm curious about from your vantage point. So I imagine you sort of keep tabs, given your work on the spread of extremism in the world now. I do. Um, there is certainly a perception. I mean, I'm an editor. Um, I think I forgot to mention that I'm Matt Thompson, the executive editor of The Atlantic. Uh, the, um, there is certainly a perception that, um, that extremism is growing, and groups that keep tabs on extremism, like the Southern Poverty Law Center, have been charting rises in the number of, right. of hate groups and hate incidents um, in the US as they define them. Um, but from your vantage point, do we have more extremism now, or is it just drawing more attention? You know, it, it, it's always been there. You know, for anybody who thinks that you know there's no racism or that we went through a period where you know racism didn't exist, uh, I can tell you that that is absolutely not true. Uh, it's shifted. Um, you know, 30 years ago, we had this concept called leaderless resistance uh, that not not only is now known as kind of a lone wolf strategy. Uh, but we encouraged people to to drop their visible edginess. You know, don't shave your heads, don't get swastika tattoos, grow your hair out, trade in your boots for suits, uh, go to college campuses to recruit where young people are forming opinions, where they're joining and looking for new communities, uh, get jobs in law enforcement, go to the military and get training, and even run for office. And I have to admit, I'm the first one who thought it would never work. Uh, but here we are 30 years later, and the similarities uh, in the rhetoric that's coming out of the White House and even the policies, I could tell you we would have, and they are jumping for joy, but we would have jumped for joy 30 years ago because it was so in line and so similar to what we wanted. We wanted to build a wall. We wanted to tear families apart. We wanted to ban Muslims and you know, Jews and all that stuff. And if we heard that now, I, you know, I know for a fact it's emboldening so many people who maybe didn't have a clear idea of what their hateful ideology was before, but now it's become crystal clear because they can back you know, tangible policies and a tangible president and a tangible administration. Uh, and I, you know, I can tell you that it's become a very disturbing, growing social movement for kind of young, marginalized white kids, both male and female. Is the one of the questions that I think I, I certainly grapple with a lot in our work um, as a journalism outlet is um, what is the strategy? How what? How does attention work um, when it comes to? Spreading extremism or alerting the world to it? Should we, uh, should we, oh, should we feature these stories or, or should we ignore them? There's this one document that I'm curious about, and I wanted to mention in particular. Um, right. This document um, purporting to be a, st a style guide for the website, the Daily Stormer, which is one of um, these um, uh, an extremist, very violent. It's, rhetoric a, it's a pretty vile white supremacist website. Yeah. Um, this, this thing that surprised me about this document is how well the authors of the document seem to get the media. I mean, how well they seem to understand the dynamics of um, just the nuts and bolts. They have a style guide, mm -hmm. um, which is a concept that's pretty familiar to me in my work. And that style guide is, um, offers guidance on things like the use of humor and its effectiveness in softening a message that may otherwise seem to be extreme. Um, 
one of the, the so many of those tactics are about sort of cheeky ways of of commanding attention, doing light acts of trollery and what have you. And we have real questions about how, what's the right, what is the eth- the ethical, um, yeah. effective way to respond to that? You know, I think we need to talk about it. We need to shed light on it. But I think that there's a way to do it to not glorify it or make it, you know, seem to some kid sitting in some basement, you know, who's having trouble, like that's something that he wants to do or she wants to do. You know, there are two things that extremists love. Not just Nazis, but all extremists. They love silence and they love violence. If we're silent, if we ignore them, they grow. They just kind of flourish, they can spread uh, and infect people with this kind of you know, false propaganda uh, and conspiracy theory. And if we're violent to them, which I've seen happen you know, many times, we're playing right into their hands because that's exactly what they want. You know, they march in places like Charlottesville and Berkeley and Skokie, Illinois, back in the 70s because they're progressive communities. And they go there intentionally to provoke people into violence because then they use it as a victim narrative. They'll say things like, do you see how my rights were being taken away? How my free speech was uh, you know, stepped on and, and how I'm being targeted as a white male as, uh, you know, as, as uh, you know, the greatest endangered species on earth that they claim exists. Uh, so it feeds right into their narrative and they use that to recruit more people. Uh, so we have, to be, we have to hold them accountable. I believe in being vocal, visible, vigilant but not violent and if we can do all those things and hold them accountable show them that we oppose them but not adopt their tactics uh, while also keeping in the back of our mind that the only thing that can stop hate is compassion um, that's that's how we win and we don't play into their hands I want to come back to the work that you do um, today but I'm curious about the other day on uh, social media there was floating around this um, um, the latest Department of Homeland Security uh, press release, or one of the press releases from the Department of Homeland Security. And um, uh, several people theorized, well, tell me about the, the how you <laughs> I was one of press them. release. Uh, yeah, what, what was the story of this press release? So I came across, uh, somebody else had posted it and I saw it, and uh, it was the domest- uh, Department of Homeland Security's website. And on one of their recent kind of immigration postings or blogs, uh, the headline on it, uh, and I'm totally going to misquote this, but it, it was, we must secure our borders and ex- expel immigrants to, to protect our country. It was 14 words. And if somebody's not familiar with the 14 words, it's a mantra for the white supremacist movement that goes, we must secure the existence of our people in a future for white children. The DHS one was eerily similar, also 14 words. I mean, you can make your own decision. It's certainly not, you know, like, I don't have any facts that somebody, you know, was a Nazi that wrote that, but it seems very suspicious to me that with this administration, you know, somebody trolling, that somebody kind of do that, or was it intentional? It's a little frightening for me. Part of me wonders just about that ambiguity, because it seems, to, to, I would not have had that, some, and several other people responded in the moment um, on social media, on Twitter, to say to point out a whole range of different press releases through a bunch of different administrations using the phrase, we must secure. I'm sure some of those titles might have been 14 words. And there's, this, and there's this question of, at what point am I being paranoid, or at what point is this part of the strategy? Or uh, <laughs> Well, I contacted DHS. I contacted the folks I know there, and they admitted to me it was troubling language and they were going to look into it. You know, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if you know, it was a co- total coincidence or not. But you know, there are all these really odd coincidences and actions and, and you know, 
tactics that they're using that I just can't ignore anymore. But for us ordinary people in the world who have not been necessarily conditioned to see uh, uh, Nazi salutes everywhere, right, how are we supposed to process that ambiguity? How widely should we be looking for secret swastikas? I'm not trying to start a conspiracy theory, but for somebody like me who's hypersensitive to seeing all the similarities that exist, uh, you know, I can't ignore them and I have to call them out. I'm not making any assumptions about things that I don't see or don't, you know, that I don't think exist because I don't believe in inflaming the conversation. But I also believe in being honest. Uh, you know, I get asked all the time, you know, is the Trump administration racist? I don't know, but I can judge by their policies that it's hurting people of color. Uh, so if that makes them racist, that makes them racist. I mean, uh, I don't know what to say to that other than I'm witnessing things that I would have supported 30 years ago that I know that white nationalists, whatever name, fancy name they're using now, um, that they're applauding it and that it's in line with their you know, ideology and, and it's certainly allowing them to grow and become normalized and emboldened and, and frankly just blend in. We've, we're at a time where we don't even know. There might be some here right now and you wouldn't know it because they look just like you. Uh, and they didn't look like I did 30 years ago. But they're also being influenced by this kind of extreme right, the Roger Stones of the world and the Bannons of the world who very clearly have these kind of isolationist, uh, anti-immigrant kind of theories. After one more question, if there one more question to Christian, I'm gonna turn to, to you all for a couple questions. Um, but when you, why did you, in your current work, you are still, you're, you're engaged with this stuff. What was the process like of getting from the moment that you left the movement um, to continuing to work in that environment, in that terrain? Did you have to take a break from it? Did, was it continuous? Um, at what point did you become a de-radicalizer? Did you switch from a radical to a de-radicalizer? I ran from my past for five years after I left. I was. I was ashamed, I was too afraid of being judged the same way that I had judged people, and and I didn't know who I was or where I belonged anymore. I was treating other people with respect because I had started to receive compassion from the people I frankly, I least deserved it from uh, at a time I least deserved it, and that really kind of connected me to them and destroyed the demonization. Um, But after I left, closed my store, lost my wife and my children, I went through a, a depression for five years because I didn't know who I was anymore. I was treating other people with a ton of respect, I was treating myself very, very poorly um, because I still had self-hatred. I still had not learned how to deal with that. Uh, and it took me a long time uh, until a friend came up to me and she said, you know, I, I'd been waking up mornings like not wanting to wake up. And, and she said, I don't want to see you die. Go apply for a job where, you know, I just started working. And, and then she told me it was a company called IBM and I told her she was crazy. Uh, because you know, here I was, this ex-Nazi who had gone to six high schools, gotten kicked out of all of them, one of them twice, didn't go to college, didn't even own a computer. I mean, it was kind of like a waste of time. Um, but I went, and uh, you know, they asked me back. I got another job, uh, another interview, and I got the job. And it was an entry-level job, but I was thrilled. I was going to be installing computers and networks and businesses and school districts and. And then they told me where I'd be going for my first day of work, and I was terrified. It was my old high school, the same one I'd gotten kicked out of twice. (laughs) 
eh, destiny, karma, <laughs> fate, God's will, whatever you believe in. I mean, I was like, wanted to crawl in a hole because I thought I was going to walk into the school. And even though it had been eight years since I'd gone to that school and five years after I left, somebody was going to recognize me and remember the things that I did. Uh, and who happens to walk by me in the first hour while I'm trying to like avoid everybody. Uh, but it was uh, the old African-American security guard, Mr. Johnny Holmes, who I had actually gotten in a fist fight with, and that got me kicked out the second time and dragged out the book of one fight you lost in that book. No, I didn't. I won that Oh, fight. that was the yeah. fight you won? Oh. <laughs> but just to finish that story, it was really him who saved my life, because I decided at that moment, even though I had no idea what I was going to say, and I was sweating and, you know, like this nervous wreck, I followed him to the parking lot, and when I saw him, you know, he recognized me, and he took a step back, and... And uh, I told him I was sorry. I didn't know what else to say. And uh, we talked and you know, we shook hands and embraced and cried. And, and he made me promise that I would tell my stories. And, and I've been telling it for almost 20 years. Our sister podcast, The Bridge, is back. The Bridge brings together wise women of different generations to talk about what matters most. Season 2's first episode features Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. She's a Nobel laureate and the former president of Liberia. In her conversation with host Peggy Clark, she talks about how women lead differently than men. Women have a sensitivity to humankind that I think is far lacking in men. And that's why women don't go to war. Women find compromises. She also speaks with Clark about global development, women's rights, and what it's like leading a nation in healing. Host Peggy Clark leads the Aspen Global Innovators Group at the Aspen Institute. Look for The Bridge wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's get back to our featured talk. Here's Matt Thompson. So I'm going to turn to you all for questions. I will, I will stress that word, questions. And if you do have a comment, I will probably need to be de-radicalized by Christian, so <laughs> uh, the mic runner will come right over here. Hi. The only comment I'll start with, then I do have a question, is we spend so much of our lives trying to hide what we're not proud of, and I am just absolutely touched and moved by your courage. Um, so thank you. Um, my, my question, which... Um, I think it's going to sound really ignorant. Um, you were, Not as ignorant as I used to be, so go ahead. <laughs> um, was, you, were, you were saying that a lot of the movement is to be prepared. Um, prepared for what? Like, what, what is the call? Was it take up your, what is, take up your arms and do what? Like, what, what, what is the preparation for? And yeah. to do what to whom? In what way? Well, I, I think like any extremist group cult, it was preparing for the end times, right? It was preparing for the end of the world that we thought was inevitable. Uh, you know, whether that was you know, one group thinking that they were going to die and go, you know, to heaven for 40 virgins or us going to Valhalla where we would, you know, drink and fight all day and, you know, and feast all night or, uh, you know, you'd go to paradise. That was... It, we had no view of the future because we had never experienced hope. So the end of the world for these groups that have no view of what hope is, is kind of like that's their hope. Oh, I'm gonna die and I'm gonna go to a better place. We should make a better place here while we're here, I think. 
All right. Um, how about right up here? What do you think of Morris Tease and the Southern Poverty, the work that he does? And secondly, has your life been threatened by these people for many years? Uh, I get death threats every day, uh, more than one. Uh, I'm sure if I looked at my phone now, I probably have one. Um, and I've been getting them for as long as I can remember. Um, but you know what? I was willing to, to really lay down my life for something that was extremely stupid and, and didn't make any sense 30 years ago. If somebody wants to hurt me for doing the right thing, it's not going to deter me from doing the right thing. So, you know, I guess it is what it is. Uh, as far as Morris Dees goes, I think, you know, he's got an amazing history of challenging these groups. Uh, I don't think that any organization, even the Southern Poverty Law Center, is perfect. This is a complicated issue where sometimes we make mistakes. Uh, but I think historically, if you look at the Southern Poverty Law Center, they've been one of the champions uh, pointing out this, along with groups like the Anti-Defamation League, uh, who really are you know, the best at identifying these trends and, and profiling these groups so that people like me know about them, people like you know about them, and we don't continue to sweep it under the rug thinking we're living in a post-racial society. Yeah. So. There, there is... Um, uh, you work with a range of, of different types of uh, ideologies and extremists today. So you've worked with former people who come out of ISIS, mm -hmm. in addition to white. Are, is there anything? What is there anything distinct about um, white supremacy movements um, from, say, ISIS? Um, I mean, there's some nuance, but I think foundationally it's, you know, people join, get involved for the same reasons. They're looking for acceptance. They're looking to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. And in the real world, they haven't been able to find that. Um, they stay in for the same reasons because it's way too hard to abandon that sense of who you are and start over. Uh, but they also come out for the same reasons. They come out because, uh, you know, they've had an instance or multiple instances where they've had the ability to humanize the people that they think are the enemy. Uh, and I've, I've heard this hundreds of times. I mean, I've helped over 175 people at various stages of disengaging from extremism, uh, you know, ISIS, far right, uh, you know, neo-Nazis, things like that. And I can tell you every single person I've talked to when I've asked them, why did you join? They all say, I just wanted to be accepted. Uh, and if you ask them why they got out, they say, I received compassion from the people I least deserved it from when I least deserved it. That's not to say it is the responsibility of people of color to do this because it's dangerous. Uh, but frankly, we don't know who extremists are anymore. They could be sitting here. We should just be compassionate to everybody because we don't know who we're going to affect. One hundred and seventy-five people you brought yeah. out of the yeah. out of that lifestyle and ideology at various stages. Yeah, how does that? How does how does the, do you weight the scale um, from the people that you brought in and the people that you've brought out? Um, uh, it's hard. Uh, uh, you know, I still to this day am pulling out weeds from all those seeds that I planted. Uh, you know, I changed it. I, I didn't only hurt my victims, but I hurt the people that, whose lives I changed. You know, the 16-year-old kids who probably would have had a normal life, but I brought them into this, and, you know, maybe they ended up in prison or dead or, you know, uh, how really much, ingrained. How much did the movement grow when you were in it? Oh, it grew very fast, very quickly. It grew very large, very quickly. Um, it was... It was kind of the thing to do if you were a punk rocker and were tired of punk rock, you would go to, you know, to maybe a more extreme thing. You know, and people, young people, extremists hop 
I've known so many like extreme leftists who are now extreme Nazis and extreme Nazis who've become extreme leftists and we even know neo-Nazis who've become ISIS members and it's like they just are, ideology and dogma is not driving this. It is not what is radicalizing people. I was radicalized from the first day I was born. Those potholes radicalized me. The ideology just gave me a license to be angry. It gave me the permission slip. But I was already, I could have gone any direction. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it is growing. I think that there are a lot of disillusioned young people. Um, I think we're failing young people. I think we make it too hard for them to succeed. I think we need to be vulnerable with our children so they can learn to be vulnerable with us. Uh, teachers need to be vulnerable with their students so that students can be vulnerable. We've created this kind of whole you know, suit of armor for adults that we're superheroes and we know everything. We don't know everything. We make a lot of mistakes. Young people are idealistic and they may not know all the answers, but you know, they're not stupid either. And I think that we, they, we owe them the opportunity to amplify their passions and hear their voices because maybe they're not as jaded as we are. So you have, um, you've built a new life for yourself. You're doing this work over the past 20 years. You have a wife who is here uh, with us right here in Britain. Um, and you have your children. Um, My kids are going to be 26 and 24 this year. What did you, how did you, understanding with your understanding that anyone could be pulled into this, and also given the fact that the, some of their earliest years mm. were while you were in the movement, yeah. Um, what did you do as a father to try to avoid them taking the path that you took? You know, I, I, my wife left me when the kids were just three and one, so I, they never really saw that involvement. But I was also very careful not, about not bringing it home. My wife was not involved. Uh, I never tried to push it on my family or my kids because I think deep down inside I knew how ugly and broken it was. And while I thought, okay, I'll just carry them on my shoulders and I'll do it, Something inside of me knew to keep it away from them. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't you know, disengage quickly enough. Um, you lost a brother. Yeah. Um, your younger brother, Buddy. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, what did you, um, from that experience, um, what is the thing that you uh, wish you had, I guess, as an older brother to yourself? Yeah, good question. So my brother uh, was shot and killed um, because he was trying to follow in my footsteps. I had already left the movement, and he didn't go down the exact same path that I did, but it was still a very self-destructive gang environment. And my brother was really nothing like me. I was more kind of always the idealistic go-getter, and he was kind of the cuddly you know, follower that just made everybody laugh. But I left a legacy that he felt he needed to live up to. Uh, and um, he got involved with some folks that you know, were into some bad stuff. And, and he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he was shot and killed by a black gang member. Um, and I just remember going to his funeral, just being completely heartbroken that I just lost my brother. And there were people that you know, I'd known, family members, that were begging me to take action because they expected me to be that killer, that person that went and got revenge, and, and frankly, it was the last thing that was on my mind. I just wanted my brother back, you know. I, um, but is there anything with your knowledge that you think you could have done? Is yeah. there any way that you could have filled those potholes that... I really abandoned my brother like, like my parents abandoned me. I kind of 
went through that cycle again. You know, in 19, I was married and had children, so I was already starting my own family. And my brother was 10 years younger than me, so we were very close before I joined the movement. He was kind of like my little, he was my only friend uh, until I was 14. And then when I was 14, I had this new life and this new trajectory, and then I had my own family, and I really kind of left my brother behind. And, you know, by the time I came back and I was, you know, I got my senses together and I recognized what he was in, you know, he said to me, like, you're not my brother, you're my uncle. I hardly see you. I don't even talk to you. And, and uh, you know, I feel, I, I did feel very, very responsible for his death because I felt like if I was there for him, um, that he wouldn't have needed to go down that path. And, you know, I, I, I still hold those feelings. I don't blame myself for it, but I've learned not to. Um, but I think, you know, that we, we abandon people for our own interests and sometimes don't look back, but sometimes, even though those people are quiet, they're the ones who are screaming the loudest for our attention. And I think we need to just, we need to pay attention to those quiet screams a little bit better. Let me take one more question. What can be done to reverse the course of those members in, to get them out? What is, at a political, grassroots, at whatever level, what can be done? Good question. Uh, first of all, we all have the tools to do it because it is not an ideological debate. I don't ever engage with anybody that I work with on an ideological level. I don't argue with them. I don't tell them they're wrong. I want to, trust me, but I know that that just pushes them further away. It's, it creates more polarization. Instead, I listen, and I listen for those potholes, those things that were broken, those voids in their lives. And I, you know, I say, see the child, not the monster, because it doesn't matter if it's a six-year-old or a 60-year-old, it still always stems from that brokenness, you know, usually the trauma in youth. And I listen, and then I fill in those potholes. I will provide connections to job trainers or life coaches, mental health therapists, tattoo remove, whatever, the case, whatever they need, and sometimes it's a lot. Um, and I listen because they've never had anybody listen to them. And I have this kind of special ability to filter out all the BS that they tell me because, I, frankly, I used to say it at 14 and it sounds really ridiculous to me now. Uh, so I, I'm able to kind of pinpoint the important parts. And they tell me and they don't even know that they're telling me. Uh, and then I start to ask questions, personal questions. You know, they'll ask me about the Holocaust and I'll say, what's your relationship like with your dad? You know, and, uh, and they're like, oh, well, my dad committed suicide when I was four. And I was like, that's a pothole, you know, like we need to work on that. Um, so I create kind of this assessment based on building human resilience. Um, because when people are happy, they don't plant bombs. When they feel whole and self-confident, they're not, you know, creeping down an alley to, to beat up a homeless person or something like that. And my goal is really to, to build them up so they don't have to blame the other. But, you know, again, I challenge them by introducing them eventually to the people they think that they hate. Uh, Holocaust deniers and Holocaust survivors I've sat with for hours and Islamophobes and imams and uh, homophobes and LGBTQ communities. And I tell you, every time the demonization that exists in their head, it's impossible for it not to become destroyed when they're faced with somebody who does not fit that profile. And it start, the more that happens, the more questions come up, and then eventually you just can't reconcile the, the prejudice anymore. Christian Picciolini, thank you very much for sharing this with us. Christian Picciolini is a reformed extremist. 
He left the white supremacist skinhead movement in Chicago two decades ago. Since then, he has dedicated his life to helping others leave hate behind. He spoke with The Atlantic's Matt Thompson. Previously, Thompson oversaw teams of reporters at NPR who covered race and culture. Their conversation was held June 29, 2018 at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keeling Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jonathan Melgard, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.